Welcome to State of the Arts, a larger than live version of the WQXR podcast, Conducting Business. I'm Naomi Lewin. Well, the hordes of people clamoring to get into Broadway shows like Wicked and the Book of Mormon or museum shows like The Rain Room at MoMA are apparently the exception rather than the rule. That is the conclusion of a new survey of public participation released last week by the National Endowment for the Arts. It shows an overall decline in arts consumption by Americans, particularly museum and theater attendants. There were smaller dips in classical music and ballet audiences, but The report wasn't all gloom and doom. Audiences are getting more racially and ethnically diverse, and there are hints that technology is playing a larger role in how we consume culture. But today we will unpack some of the NEA's numbers and consider the future of arts audiences with five guests. Oscar Eustace is artistic director of the Public Theater, and he has worked as a director, dramaturg, and impresario for theaters around the country. Robert Battle is artistic director of the Alvin Ailey Dance Theater. He's also a choreographer and a retired dancer. Jesse Rosen is president and CEO of the League of American Orchestras, which represents symphonies around the United States. Anne Majette is chief classical music critic of the Washington Post. And you have already met Graham Parker, general manager of WQXR and my boss. We are very sorry not to have a representative from the NEA, but we do have all the lovely numbers that they crunched for the 2012 survey, and we will be putting some of them up on our screens. On our WQXR blog, we asked people what they thought might be driving attendance down, and the answers we got included ticket prices, competition from pop culture, cuts in arts education, and shortened attention spans. So I'm going to throw this out To all our guests, is there one of those comments from our WQXR website that particularly resonates in your field? Oscar, you want to go first since you're right here? (laughs) Um, I think it's interesting that chart is since 1982 because that means that chart was started charting things two years after Ronald Reagan was elected president and the American counter-revolution really took legislative form because for 30 years, really, we've had a change in the culture of our country. And I think two things really epitomize that change. One, the increasing wealth disparity, which has accelerated in the last decade to extraordinary and terrible consequences, and the fact that technology has actually changed an immense amount about how we receive and process information. So for me, both of those things are worth looking at. Ticket prices are enormously difficult. We all know that in my field... What's happened when you mention Wicked or Book of Mormon is that the the economic model of those commercial uh, shows is to get the greatest number of dollars possible from every seat. And so it's changing the idea of theater into a luxury commodity item that can be afforded as a, 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 a luxury item by the few, not as something that is meant for the many, which, of course, the NEA was founded with the principle that the culture belongs to all Americans in a democracy. So that's – maybe I'll stop there because otherwise I'll give a speech and that will be so boring. <laughs> but okay. that, that, but I but think we right. have to look at prices and we have to look at, at, the, at the ideology behind prices as well. Because there were so many generations who grew up going as families to the theater – and it was just – it was what you did. And, of course, in, in my particular case, we give away 2,000 seats every night all summer at the most beautiful theater in New York at the Delacorte. 
doing Shakespeare and other things, and we never have an empty seat. There somehow doesn't seem to be a problem with getting people to come when you eliminate, even though they often have to wait in line for many hours. The economic areas, we always want to jump over them, and they're actually incredibly important. Other comments? You Jesse? Know, one thing to point out about the data, and um, I think the trend line is, is, is appropriate and, and accurate, but participation data is not the same thing as attendance data. And so what we're looking at is a change in the proportion of our population that participates. As the population grows, you can actually have attendance grow while your participation rate declines. And so if you look at orchestra attendance over that whole period, the participation rate didn't indeed decline, but actual attendance stayed pretty level. And then there came, you know, after 2001, there was a dip and now it's beginning to come back up again. So, the, 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 you know, there are two, two, two metrics going here. And I think, having said that, I think orchestras, um, you know, definitely have a challenge around audience development. And I, I'm sure you'll get to this, but, you know, we know one of, the, one of the areas is in the age cohort that's 34 to 54, I think. And I think that fall-off ran across a number of the performing disciplines, at least in the 34 to 44 group. That's our next chart. <laughs> next chart, okay. So I, I, I won't go there for now, but I, I think it would be a mistake to get too alarmist about the, you know, this very steep participation decline, and it partly explains Oscar's point, which is that you can, in fact, have a declining participation rate while attendance can remain flat. How about from the world of dance? There's my world, and then there's the world of dance. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you speak for, speak for the world of dance, and then we can get to your world. <laughs> Which isn't always mutually exclusive, but I will say that, that, that in some ways we found, um, and, and you see with the data, that, that there's an increase. And, and certainly uh, the Ailey Company has always uh, had the notion, of you're talking about the dances for everybody, so using that as a catalyst for, in our city center season, we give 7,000 tickets, at uh, some at $25. Uh, we also do student tickets at $15. So, so having a sort of understanding of that, that need and that um, disparity um, has been something that's always been on, on the minds of, of our marketing and, and how we do things. And certainly now, the way people engage and participate has changed and evolved, and I'm not sure that we are necessarily evolving with that. You know, the idea that it starts before one gets to the theater. You know, like you go to a restaurant now, you look at everything, you look at what people have to say, not just official people like critics, but you look at... What are people saying about this? So, you know, this whole sort of coaxing happens from the front end and then at the back end, that once you leave this, you want to sort of continue that experience. So how we engage on the front end and back end has changed because there's more choices. And then I think a lot about a friend of mine who said, uh, well, they went to see an orchestra and they left at intermission because they said, well, my sound system's better at home. So, I mean, you know, so there's this, like, you know, the choice thing is, is really important at how, how we're sort of measuring these statistics. On the subject of ticket prices, I want to ask Graham. We have events here in the green space, and they are often very reasonably priced. Some of them, like the wonderful series we just had, the August Wilson series, completely sell out. But then we have some where we have top-name performers and even though the tickets are reasonably priced, 
they don't sell out. Why do you think that is? I, I mean, I think, you know, there's many considerations. I Sometimes it can be a, a simple factor of the day of the week doesn't work. It just I, I had something else and I just I would love to go. But in the media world, and we're doing this today, you could watch it later. I, I can't actually come right now. I'll just watch it at home on my excellent sound system that's hooked up to my computer. And I'll watch the video webcast when I'm sitting in my pajamas having a cup of coffee, which is maybe more pleasurable than rushing off to work right down here. So I think not saying that ever replaces the live experience. I think the live experience is where the best experience happens. But if you can enjoy it m- multiple times at no cost to you later, you might make that choice. But it's also incorrect to say that a concert event or a performance is an objective unity. A lot depends on context. Um, Like Joshua Bell played in the Washington Metro some years ago and nobody stopped and everybody said this is a big issue that people don't care about classical music. But there's a lot to do with time of day, with the way you make eye contact, with that dirty word marketing. Mm -hmm. Um, Don Upshaw performed in Washington a few years ago and there were like 100 people in the audience of a 2,000 seat hall, which is really bad. But that doesn't mean that Don Upshaw is not a popular popular and beloved artist who could probably have filled that hall. It's not Dawn Upshaw's fault that she didn't fill the hall, but there are a lot of different factors that determine who goes to what, and marketing does play a role in it. Right, absolutely. All the more so now. But I would also add to this discussion that there's a caveat, uh, there's a canard perhaps, in thinking that equating the arts with the institutions that purvey the arts. And we tend to measure participation in the arts according to how many people attend the institutions. And particularly in my field in classical music, I think there's a huge disparity between the people who love the symphonies of Beethoven and the people who want to pay to see those symphonies performed in an orchestra hall. And we're talking about my demographic. Let's say generously, what is it, that 34 to 50 demographic. I know that very few of my friends college-educated and people who are interested in the arts, people, would pay for a ticket to hear an orchestra if I were not giving them my free tickets to come with me when I'm reviewing. (laughs) Why? I think the experience is more foreign to many people. And this is music that you can hear at home if you're not quite sure about it, if you're testing out your reactions, if you're not quite sure what you're supposed to think about it or where you're supposed to clap. It's much safer and more pleasant to hear it at home. And many of us, and I certainly myself, love the experience of going. But that experience, when you're talking about inclusivity, that experience is what is not appealing to people. It's not that Beethoven is at risk when you're measuring this kind of survey. And, you know, of course, participation electronically is going up. Can, can I just go back to something Oscar, uh, uh, Oscar said at the beginning about the Delacorte and, and the, the, the Shakespeare in the, in the summer? I mean, that is the most amazing free experience for, for those of us who get to go, and thank you for that. But I, I also wonder, it's also a, a tactic for getting people to make donations to the public. It's not like a truly uneconomic... There, there are economics at play. There might not be front-end box office ones, but you can also get the tickets by becoming a member to the public theater. So, I mean, the, the money can come in... And that's, I think that's okay, but the money can come in two different directions. It that's can come called in. called a win win. No, I know it's, it's great, but I mean, I mean, they, I yeah. mean but there, there is a, we do this in public radio as well. It's in essence free, but we also ask you to join and become a member. Um, right. You're asking for a philanthropic donation. Right. And right. by the way, you, you can only get a ticket at Shakespeare in the Park if you donate to the public. You can't right. buy the ticket. No, exactly. It's, actually right. a distin- yeah. it's an important right. distinction. Right. And those are strictly capped mm-hmm. so that on any given night, we're giving away at least fifteen to 1,600 seats in the line. Always have been for 50 years. That's the economic model that allows us to make this work. And by the way, those summer supporter tickets, as we call them, don't begin to cover the cost of the whole thing. We also have to raise money from numerous other sources. 
But the, the point that I want to run to, because uh, we've talked about the economics, and I think those are very real. Price sensitivity is very real, and particularly in a society where the wealth disparity is growing so much. But the other one is also experiential, and that's what I think you're talking about, that in order for my field, the live performance, to prosper, people have to want to gather together in a group and have an experience of being together in a group that they can't have by themselves. They don't – that we have to somehow – create a collective experience that is uplifting and better than a private and individualistic experience. And the ways that we do that now, or the the need to do that, is sharper than ever because now there are so many ways for us to go into our monad little pods and only listen to the TV channels that agree to us and only uh, talk to people who think the same way we do and just separate out. And there's a comfort in that. And there's also tremendous danger in that, which is why our government isn't open for business today because we've got our government functioning in that same way. And it's the job of those of us who are into collective experience to figure out how can we actually revitalize an idea that it is only by all of us coming together that something better happens. And would you say that one of the things that came in over our website, the lack of arts education or the cutback in arts education in the school, plays into that. Sure. I, I think the NEA data very clearly demonstrates a huge disparity in access to arts learning, which echoes what came out of the Department of Education's report on arts education last year. And what they noted was that arts education actually is relatively constant in terms of the volume of it, but its distribution is widely skewed. And so, you know, when we look at the uh, you know, in some of our fields, and particularly in classical music, the disparity of, um, of the lack of diversity in the field when arts education is skewed and made available primarily to well-to-do upper-middle-class, white-middle-class people and not to others, then you're going to have the kinds of populations that we have associated with that field. On the question about, you know, the experience, I think the good news in orchestras, they're, they're figuring this out while wrestling with a very real problem, which is that they have a segmented audience. You've got large numbers of people, and this is in the NEA data, there was actually a bump in older people going to audiences, and there is some correlation between older people preferring the more traditional kind of concert. So, Since you're mentioning that, um, we're going to go to, we've got our chart of yeah. older people, yeah. <laughs> the older people so, chart. You and so, Anne have both brought that so, up now. So, so, um, so whatever we call them, uh, they're, they're coming more. And, you know, they're a significant part of the audience that we have to pay attention to. But in the, you know, addressing of younger people who've got a different uh, expectation and desire for what the experience is, a huge amount uh, going on in orchestras to really vary the experience. And very much in the way Oscar said, are you giving me a sign to stop? All right, let me just explain a little bit. Since we've got the chart up, um, this this is the chart of of classical music. Uh, The fan base did not drop off quite as much as theaters, but it dropped off especially, as Anne mentioned, you mentioned, I think, in the 35 to 54 age bracket that you'll see on the chart. It grew in the 65 and older range. Those are the smaller but ascending large boxes on the end. So, um, Anne, are we always going to be stuck with an aging classical music no, population? we have now raised two of my favorite bugbears in this whole discussion, <laughs> which is arts education and the older audience. <laughs> First of all, um, Go to, to, return, to return to arts education for a minute, um, 
that it's often pointed to as a reason for this decline, bad arts education. There's no question that arts education has in certain areas declined. I would say that this is accompanying the change and another sign of a social change rather than the cause of a social change. I believe that our generation, probably most of us here in that generation, that's what's dropping off there. Many of us had plenty of arts education available to us. The real drop-off began kind of in the 70s, but that did not add up to an automatic desire for that age group to go to orchestra concerts, orchestras being a group that frequently point to the lack of arts education as a reason. Most of my friends who were not buying tickets to orchestra did play instruments. I mean, that's, of course, anecdotal evidence. But um, I believe that you have to see this as a social change where the activity of, as Oscar said, coming together in this particular way is no longer as familiar or interesting or as competitive with other ways of spending your time to a certain age group. And to get back to the older audience along the same lines, the older audience that's going now, I frequently hear, oh, well, it's okay because everybody ages into classical music. As people hit the age of 60, all of a sudden, they suddenly <laughs> want to go hear this stuff. <laughs> but uh, I would point out, and I am, I am married to a member of the older audience, um, that that generation was exposed to an entirely different context when they were in college, say, that even if you didn't participate in classical music to a great degree in 1963. If you were going to college or whatever, if you were living in New York, there was a lot more classical music going on. You probably had, your family might have been more involved in it. There's a chance that it was more part of your world. It was certainly in the major news magazines in a way it's not now. I think that when our generation turns 70, those factors are not going to be there to make the experience as comfortable to them as it is to people who are 70 today. I, I'm, obviously, I'm no sociologist, although I maybe look like one today. But uh, 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 and I it's don't the have the data tie. on this to prove this. But I mean, I think we all know the the country's audience is uh, the country's population is is getting older and healthier. And so, if they are going to concerts more, it might be just because they're living longer and naturally can go more. It, I'm not I'm not excusing it. I'm just saying like they're just there are just more older people in this country. And if they've been used to going to these things, then they're going to continue to go to them. Also, one of the other upsides of that they tend to be more philanthropic. They tend to buy the more expensive tickets. I'm not saying this is a good trend. The dips in the two younger generations. This is my generation as well. Is very scary. I kept reading the whole report, going like, what are they doing? They're not going to <laughs> museums. They're not going to Broadway. They're not going to visual art. They're not going to classical. What are they? doing um not going to dance either i mean it going to the movies maybe and pop concerts which is you know and but they're, going, and they're going to clubs and right. they're going to events where or, they participate because, or staying home or staying home but it, or, or, but or restaurants which is inherently an interactive phenomenon right. the thing the thing that i think we haven't fully absorbed um which is a technological change that is affecting all of us is the interactivity that's implied by everything about the net is that i think we the generation of of people who are growing up in this era are growing up with the assumption that their entertainment, like everything else, is something that is a dialogue between them and the thing itself, the work of art, whether it's a video game or texting or uh, a flash mob, any, any other way. And I think that we, in a somewhat sclerotic way, have not fully taken on board the fact that the definition of what art is, the definition of the relationship between the professional artist and the consumer, 
is being challenged by the nature of the technological world we're developing in a way that I think has the potential for great good. It's actually asking for more interactivity. It's actually suggesting maybe we need to challenge this idea of the professionals being paid sitting up under the lights and then out there in the dark, you being quiet and paying and watching. Maybe we need to actually make something where the culture is an experience more than a commodity and where we weight that. And that that's actually, I think, a very exciting possibility available to us. Okay, Wait, can I just play the... devil's advocate a little bit? Sure. Because uh, especially I come to this sometimes, I come to this as a former performer, but also as a radio person. And a lot of times when I hear radio with a lot of audience participation, particularly radio that feels it must solicit audience participation, there's a part of me that says, I listen to these people because I want to hear what the professionals say. I go to the theater because I want to see what great actors can do. Or I go to the dance because I really, I can't put two feet together. I want to, you know, I want that experience. Are we missing something by only interacting electronically? Participation is not suggested, I think, as a panacea for all fields. Participatory journalism is a really bad idea, too. But but, uh, I think what Oscar is saying, when you say we have to get back to that, if you think about classical music, the heyday of classical music when Mozart was writing was that kind of participation. In order to hear a Mozart quartet in 1790, you bought the score and you played it with your friends. And that was how music was experienced. And the whole idea of this passive audience is a relatively recent phenomenon. And I think getting right. back to more participation, doesn't, it doesn't even threaten the professional musicians. It increases interest. The, the former chair of the NEA, Bill Ivey, uh, put together a wonderful, wonderful book called Engaging Art, which he edited. It uh, came out uh, maybe four years ago. And it, it precisely is examining the ways that the definition of art as strictly separated between those who watch and those who participate is a recent historical phenomena. It is associated with a very specific set of economic uh, and political structures that have been different at many other points in history. One of our, if you'll forgive one anecdote, we've revived our mobile unit of Shakespeare where we take um, Shakespeare around to prisons and, and other audiences who don't normally have a chance. There's a scene in Measure for Measure where Isabel is actually told that she can save her brother's life if she gives up her virginity to the man who actually runs the city. And he leaves, and she turned to the audience, and she says, to whom should I complain and at the women's prison on the Upper West Side, somebody spoke right back. The police! <laughs> <laughs> right? Audience interrupted. No, no, no. The next line of the soliloquy is, if I should tell this, who would believe me? And another woman in the audience said, no one, girl. And it was both a fantastic electric moment with the audience, but what it also was was a beautiful, nerdy um, performance studies moment because you suddenly realize the soliloquy was written assuming that was going to happen. The soliloquy, what do we think those groundlings did at the Globe? I mean, they didn't say quiet. They they threw things if they didn't like it. The the greatest writer in my field wrote under conditions of interactivity. And and I don't think it had anything to do with making Richard Burbage a lesser actor, that that's what he was contending with. Um, I was at the Cleveland Orchestra, and I think Ann and I go to different concerts, and I, you know, I, I get around a lot. What I've seen is you know, an enormous amount of change in what happens in the, in the concert hall. First of all, in Cleveland, they're opening a triple set of concerts, uh, Schumann and Beethoven and Mahler, 27% of the audience were young people, most of them under 18. 
And I got to tell you, to be in a classical music concert when the audience is that many young people is a completely different experience. And you, you feel the energy. I mean, the kids are excited to be there. They're all dressed up. And it was just spectacular. There's a concert I heard in Memphis three or four years ago, which I'll never forget, which had very few bells and whistles. Uh, the music director, a young woman named Mae Ann Chen, came out on stage and she spoke for 30 seconds. She said, I just became an American citizen. I was born in Taiwan. I've lived here for 10 years, but I just became an American citizen, which made me have to think about what does that really mean? And she said, my answer was hope. I think of America as a place of hopefulness, and that's what this program is about. So immediately, you had a way of understanding and thinking about this program you're about to hear. I won't take you through the whole thing, but one of the best moments was they did Appalachian Spring uh, by Aaron Copeland, and uh, before they did it, Mann invited a group of kids this high to come out on stage. It was from a school they were working with, all African-American kids, and they had learned how to sing Simple Gifts and uh, you know the main, main theme from uh, Appalachian Spring. So the kids sing it. Everyone's you know feeling good. And then Mayan turns to the audience and asks everyone to stand up and sing along. And the whole audience just sang. And this was the most incredible experience. And there was no tweeting, texting, no video. You were just together with the people you know, experiencing this great satisfaction, singing together, young people, a great American piece of music, and it was a wonderful concert. It's funny that I just wrote an article last Sunday about multimedia in the concert hall. Very. <laughs> Robert, can you speak to... Yeah, you know, it's interesting because the foundation of the Ailey Company really, um, when we talk about inclusiveness, it, it wasn't just about coming to see dance, but it was about being as excluded as citizens. You couldn't even take or study, let alone see the images of, of, of African Americans that, that were reflective of, of who we were as a people. So this idea of participation is, is really the foundation of the company. And so when we think about the audiences and why the audiences for, for the company are growing. We reach over 500,000 people a year. That's not a plug, but it is to say that the way we have thought about engagement has always been different because of our circumstance in this country. The notion that the Ailey School, the arts and education, uh, we looked at that because you know we weren't getting it, not just because we didn't want it, but in communities that were underserved. So those audiences now even the ones that didn't decide to dance, but the company is 54 years old, we're seeing them, now they're coming to the theater because they had that access and they understand it in a very different way. So in some ways, I see the, the, the broad conversation, but for some people in this country, this has always been the conversation and always been our thought process about how to get in the door. And so now with the internet, which some people thought would further leave people and minorities behind, uh, has actually given more access uh, and, and more opportunity. And then I also think a lot about, I mean, we, we talk about everybody's looking at their, their phones and they're doing, you know, but yet we need to engage with that because that's the only way sometimes to reach them. So as much as we say, ha, live performance is where it's at, but we also have to use those tools in order to engage them so that they know that the juice is worth the squeeze. That's a perfect segue to electronic media, if, if that's okay. Uh, we have a chart, a lovely chart, about 
electronic media and consuming art through electronic media. The NEA survey found that traditional broadcast media are still the most popular forms of electronic media to access the arts. TV and radio are uh, the biggest bar there. And after that come mobile phones, internet, and CDs and DVDs. So last year, nearly three-quarters of American adults consumed art through some form of electronic media. Robert, you recently told the New York Times that you wake up Uh with Facebook and you go to bed with cable TV. So now we're going from your your personal, (laughs) your your professional Alvin Ailey world into uh, your Robert world. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Do you feel that this takes away from time you spend with the arts, or is that another consumption method? No, and it's also it's it's it's. You know, I was one of those Luddites um, who were saying, oh, no, Facebook. And, and even sometimes I have to be pulled along with our marketing department that we want to do such and such on Facebook or have captions where people look at the photos of the dancers and, and write what they might be saying to one another. And I'm going, but why would anybody want to do that? Because <laughs> I know what they're saying to one another. <laughs> <laughs> but, Once again, that's the you world and not the yes. world. Um, but, but for me, now we have about 300,000 fans and likes on Facebook, so that, and we travel the world, of course. And so, you know, people in whatever different countries can feel that they, or wherever they are, uh, that they can engage with the company and they can continue this. So sometimes I really wake up to it because I read, you know, sort of. They saw the performance, it inspired them, or they're waxing poetic about uh, some photo and saying, oh, it's like angels in the wind, whatever it is. But that to me is inspiring and sort of um, helps me remember what this is all about. It's about what the experience is for the people coming to see the performance as much as it is about me performing. But, all right, will technology make up for declining audiences? Well... I think it's how we use it, really. Uh, nothing takes the place of, of live performance. Uh, how do we convince people? We, of that? we know that, but so it's it's making sure that all of this technology is really what is it about? Because it isn't the thing, but it's to get people to the thing, which is uh, the theater. And so everything we do with the blogging and with the website is really about. You know, we usually show like three minutes. A teaser of a particular work that we're going to perform. And so it's just three minutes, and we make sure that that three minutes matters because attention spans, three minutes is all you get. And then they get to see. So knowing that you're not giving them the whole thing, but that's a way to entice. Well, to support what you're saying, I haven't seen any figures that imply, and we all say anecdotally that technology is partly responsible for this decline and contributing to this decline, but it could be that the people who access the arts most on new technology are also the people who are going more. Right. This, this survey doesn't imply a causality. But, but, but I do think that we, the, those of us who are providing the live experience have to continually think about how do we need to actually change the way we provide the live experience so that it is as exciting and uh, for we say nothing replaces the live experience. We've got to prove it, and we've got to prove it to other people. Other people have to feel like they come, and they're having an experience they couldn't have elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And our delivery systems 
including the price points, but there's many other aspects of our delivery systems, can be very outmoded. I, I used to run a theater in Providence, Rhode Island, Trinity Rep, which was the largest cultural organization in the state, hugely successful, way outsized compared to any other theater in the country in terms of the percentage of the audience of Rhode Island that it hits. But still, the most common question that I would get when I'd be at a party somewhere with people who didn't go to Trinity, if they'd really get down to talking seriously about whether they'd come, they'd say, how do I need to dress? And what you realize is that even in that incredibly populist community with that theater, there's still a feeling that, oh, somehow I'm not going to be welcome. I'm not going to fit in. I have to put on a costume to go there. We have to work so hard to change that. I, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I actually wanted to kind of tie something back to what Robert was talking about. I, I think the, the behavior of the actual audiences that go is, can be such a turnoff to people who are trying it out for the first time or a younger generation. I actually had the fortunate chance to bring my two young kids to a, a family matinee at Lincoln Center of, of the Alvin Ailey Company. Thank you. Uh, it, was an, it, was a, it, was, it was amazing and, and it was designed for kids, a great length of program, variety. It was really great. And my kids have been to things. They're young. They're six and four. Uh, they've, been, they've been to things before. They roughly know how to behave. But, um, but, the, but they did things that kids do. Ask questions. What's going on? I don't understand. They're asking me in whispers. We talked about that before. The lady in front gave me so much attitude about my kids. And, she, and then she had the gall to say to me, they should go home and watch a DVD. Oh. I'm like... Are you kidding? I mean, like, are you kidding me? Like, they are the ones that should be here. Maybe you should go home and watch the DVD. But, um, uh, you know, I mean, just, it was just like, the ex- if I hadn't been in the arts, I mean, I, w- I didn't really care what she says, but if I just was a stranger and that was the first time I had a chance to... You wouldn't bring them I back. I wouldn't bring them back. But it's the, back. those audiences who are participating, uh, maybe ones that shouldn't be participating, um, but... It, it just that attitude in the in the house is can be so off-putting, um, and, and in dozens of playbills around the country, the ten rules of concert etiquette: how right. you must behave. Right. I would abolish all of them if I could. Right. Do right. not unwrap your crinkling candies. Right. Right. I have a piece coming up in this week's um, Washington Post about people taking cell phone pictures in museums. They mm-hmm. go if you go to the National Gallery when it's open, everybody's <laughs> taking a picture. And um, one of the editors came to me and said, "Isn't this awful? Write a piece about how bad it is." And I wrote a piece basically defending it because yeah, people are. Are loving the work, they want to engage with it. Maybe they don't even know how to engage with it, but taking a picture is a way to bring yourself closer, and that should be applauded and encouraged. And we all in the arts are learning that we have to remember to be a little less um, prescriptive about how the arts ought to be consumed. Now, orchestras and other arts entities have introduced the notion of tweet seats. So with a, a population that is now connected 24-7, how do you deal with this? I, I think... Um there's just so much in play right now. I mean, so many things are just changing really, really fast. And I think that what we're seeing in orchestras is just a lot of experiments. And there are people who are uh, not happy with what they're experiencing. There are some people who are, who are very, very happy. But the good news is the rate of change and trying out new things is really uh, quite remarkable. And one of the things I mentioned in the, the Huffington Post piece is a consortium of nine orchestras anchored by the New World Symphony Um, that has tested three new concert formats designed to attract younger audiences. One are mini-concerts that are 30 minutes long. One is a concert with a reception beforehand, and the other is a concert that begins at 9.30 at night, and following the classical music performance, the space, the Frank Gehry uh, space they perform, is turned into a nightclub. And one of the interesting things about this series, they've been testing it for four years, and after every performance, they get immediate feedback from the audience telling them what they liked and what they didn't like, and that information goes back up to the concert producers. And so they're continually changing 
and adjusting as they go. So I think there's going to be a lot of messiness for a while as people try to figure this out. I mean, it's not simple. It's going to take a little, little time. Uh, just going back to this, I mean, I don't have to put the slide up, but um, you know, the, the radio kind of TV proportion of traditional media still being the greatest consumption area and digital and all the other formats being supported behind that. We learn this in radio. I mean, still proportionally here at QXR and our sister station WMYC, the greatest proportion is terrestrial. They're still listening on FM. And it's and, not but, listening online. They're doing it both. It's, it's not a one or the other. That person was in the concert hall and tweeting. They were going to a museum and taking a picture. It doesn't have to be one or the other. It's actually both. And we had some research done for our sister station NYC that totally proved this point, that it is a multi-platform experience, and that's what I want, and that's what I expect you to give me. I will do both, but I want both. I, mean, I, I have the advantage of being uh, working in an art form that doesn't define itself uh, as classical, although we have classics within it. Um, and so one of the things I'm most interested in is how it changes the nature of the art itself. We did a show this uh, past year um, with uh, the musician David Byrne and Alex Timbers, the director, called Here Lies Love, which was an immersive experience that we actually created a discotheque and did the show in the discotheque with the audience in the disco dancing. And the specific goal, you know, we set ourselves in very practical terms. We know that we could create a great club with great David Byrne dance music. We also know that we can go into a theater and tell a story. Can we do them both together? Can we get this club and this interactive experience? But can we tell a story that has intellectual, political, and emotional impact on the audience? And I'm delighted to say that because of the, the genius of Mr. Byrne and Alex, the answer was yes. And, you know, that, that show is going to have a very long life all around the world if uh, we are able to respond to all the requests we have for it. But that's a way in which that, that it's actually a, a the art itself has changed to say how can we tell a dramatic story in a way that is appropriate to this historical moment. And fortunately, Amelda Marcos, as David Byrne said, came with her own soundtrack. <laughs> since, so it, they won't all be in discos. But it was, a, for me, a very exciting way that the art itself pioneers how to change the relationship to the I audience. I think we're seeing that a lot in orchestras, too, happily, that there's a lot of experimenting. The video screen is not only a tool to make the art more palatable to a younger audience. It's a tool to help bring the art into the 21st century and help it help change the experience and change the art. And, and one of the things I, r- I really want to say about the, the nature of this new uh, uh, electronic medium, the Internet and everything that comes with it, is that we've got a whole lot of choices to make about the Internet that are going to end up affecting all of us who are interested in the arts. Uh, one of the little statistical things that I love is that in 1914, Sears sold 5 million radio sets that were send and receive radio sets that when the radio first was introduced, the assumption was that it was a two-way medium, that you would listen and you would broadcast. And, of course, that changed rapidly. And there's a brilliant book called The Master Switch, which describes how every new technology that's been introduced in the late 19th, 20th, into the 21st century has had a moment where it's truly an interactive democratic technology, and then there's been a moment of consolidation where it becomes corporatized, where people own it, where people control and own the bands, and where it becomes a one-way consumer-to-creator relationship. And the Internet is still in the phase where those struggles have not been resolved. The Internet is still free. 
the internet still you can't and those struggles keeping that a truly democratic interactive medium i think are going to be real political struggles that we need to wholeheartedly engage in because however the technology ends up affecting us the keeping it interactive and keeping it democratic is going to be good for the arts of course that's in this country because there are some countries where it's not as you bet, but again, we we can set a standard here yes. that also ends up absolutely. It is not easy for China to keep Google suppressed, <laughs> and it will get less easy as long as we keep it truly democratic here. It'll be interesting to see. But it's a shame is. to see the internet as a threat to the arts when it can be just the opposite. I mean, professional exactly. sports was terrified when first radio and then television came along because nobody <laughs> will go to the games anymore. Now we all know how that went. Worked that, pretty the well. The same thing can happen <laughs> with the arts with the internet if people use it intelligently and aren't simply frightened of it. Well, this discussion is very interesting, and I would like to throw it open to members of the audience, both here in the green space and our video audience. If you have a question, we have a microphone. You can talk. It is interactive. Um, we did get a Twitter question in, and this came from Christy to Anne, but it actually would pretty much apply to anybody here. What marketing techniques or tools do you find effective to get people to, in quotes, make eye contact and buy the ticket? Well, I think the question must have been referring to what I said about Joshua Bell, and I know that a number of people who busk for a living, who play on streets for a living, commented that the classical concert is this very elite thing where the performer is often less and less so, fortunately, but often turned into himself. And if you want to make good money playing on the sidewalk, you learn all kinds of ways to make eye contact and to connect with the audience in sort of nonverbal ways. So that was what I was referring to specifically with that particular comment. But as for marketing, everybody else here is much more qualified to say what works than I am. <laughs> I, I, I think you have to decide what audience you're trying to reach. I mean, I think, yes. you know, that, I mean, that start with which age group, what, you know, what, who you want in your house or who you feel would best enjoy the art form and then make the decisions from there. I think this idea of one size fits all and ad in the New York Times will sell your haul. No, uh, it'll be, it often doesn't do that anymore. It's, it's Facebook is cheaper, quicker, better, possibly if you're trying to drive to a certain audience. Hi, I'm Lydia Contos, executive director of Kaufman Music Center, and we produce some concerts in Merkin Concert Hall, and there's a lot of conversation about food and drink. And I'm surprised nobody mentioned it because there's all this discussion about media. And um, sometimes my staff wants to convince me that if we don't start allowing food and drink to fall all over the floor and stay in the carpet... Uh, <laughs> We're just going to lose audience. So I, this whole interaction of eating and drinking, wondering what you think about it. There's an orchestra in Cleveland called City Music, and uh, they're 10 years old. They're made up of young professional musicians. And at every concert, they take a break in the middle for about an hour, and the orchestra and the audience eat supper together. And then they go back and play the second That's half great. of the concert. But I think we're talking now more about more established spaces. Um, Miller Theater, Symphony Space allow people to eat and I'm drink. Broadway theaters now do. I'm entirely in favor of food and drink as long as you don't put ice in the drinks. Um, <laughs> that, that, you know, seriously. Because it waters them down? No, 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 because the, so the sound of it. The sound of it. <laughs> And it's, all, it's, it's a cultural shift, but I think it's a cultural shift that uh, when you do it, it has real payoff in terms of people's feeling of being at home. One of the things the survey doesn't really answer, but it brought up a big question for me, is the participation rates certain certain art forms are going down. But that's but it did say half the country is is participating in the arts. But how many times are they doing it? If they're doing it just once, that's a problem. It's the we need to we deal with this in radio. We need people to 
keep listening or trying it again, try it again, try it again. And I think, you know, to, again, to Oscar's point, if you can make it just one step simpler just so they can come back one more time and then one more time after that, that's the thing you're looking for. I think we have another question here. Would you, who are you? And Hi, I'm Christine Rhee. I'm with American Express Philanthropy, and I've worked with some of you, and our organization has. My question is, I think we're clear on the problem, thanks to NEA, and thanks to this excellent panel. There's also some great ideas for solutions, but the path to get there is difficult because there's so many stakeholders, like the various unions, old audiences, new audiences, etc. So my question is more on how do we get there? What kind of leadership skills do you think are required at the heads of these arts organizations to get us from, we know the problem, we have an idea of the solution, how do we get from A to B? In 25 words or less. (laughs) (laughs) Bob? (laughs) Bob Bob had a PowerPoint on this in the green room. Exactly. I'm still thinking that would be a bad idea <laughs> about the eating and drinking with the dancers yeah. for an hour so you, you in between. <laughs> and just, I was like, mate, no. <laughs> but I would like to eat and drink with all of you. Um, well, I really think, I mean, part of that thing, you know, for me, I mean, I, I, I'm fortunate I have a marketing department and a PR department. I'm looking at the head. Of that. Anyway, um, that... I really try to just make sure the juice is worth the squeeze, you know. So that, that's not something I think about so much. But part of that looking at Facebook in the morning is not just, you know, narcissistic behavior, which I have plenty of that. Um, but it really is trying to keep uh, my finger on the pulse, you know, of, of, of keeping people sort of engaged. Um, and so some of that really is just an artistic thing as opposed to thinking about numbers and statistics. You know, I leave that to the professionals. Anyone else? If, if, I, if I could just say one thing, it's actually kind of important to me to say, is that I'm only qualified to speak about my profession, although I have my opinions elsewhere, that there is not a union anywhere connected to the theatrical industry that is part of the problem. Unions, the idea that working people band together in order to get decent livings, even when they work in the arts, is not the thing that is destroying or damaging my art form. It's actually something, the, the, the thing we need to do is provide a better living for all of the workers in our art form. The business models are clearly under intense challenge right now in all of the disciplines, and we've got to rethink those business models. We've got to figure out how we're going to fund what we believe in, but part of funding what we believe in is figuring out how we're going to pay the people who do it and I just, it's, there's a kind of reflexive American thing now of just talking about unions as if they're like Superstorm Sandy. You know, there's a natural disaster called a union. And again, in my profession, unions have been always part of the solution to the problem, not, not part of the problem. Speaking of funding what you believe in, uh, we have somebody else with a question. Hi, I'm Laura Walker. I'm president of New York Public Radio. Thank you all for uh, coming and joining us on this panel. I think someone said, maybe it was you, Bob, uh, the uh, electronic experience is not the real thing. I'm kind of curious about uh, what if you treated the electronic experience in your each of your forms as the real thing and kind of thought of that experience as equal to or in some ways perhaps more powerful than um, what might happen in a different way, what might happen in a concert hall. I mean, it may be particularly hard in dance. Um, but, but you know, I think we have to shift uh, to kind of see the opportunity there. So I'm curious. 
like you said, for dance, I mean, it's such an ephemeral um, and delicate art form in the live theater. It just, you know, of seeing dancers and, and seeing the beads of sweat like I have here and seeing that kind of effort, I mean, it, it just can't be reproduced, at least not yet. Some of the thought process, how does it amplify what we're doing? You know, how do we use it as amplification as opposed to something that we are anti, you know? We're not about this whole, you know what I mean? So I think it's finding a way that it's not sort of an adversary, but it really is working in tandem to, to create this uh, sort of universal experience. I think the biggest case study, sorry, for what you're saying is the Met in HD, the live broadcast from the Metropolitan Opera, where they are different from live in the house, but they have become a sort of separate and equal phenomenon. And we're still working out all the bumps of what that means, but there it is. We had a question from Monique on Twitter. Is there value in giving new rules to audiences with regard to etiquette? If so, how would you go about doing that? No, no rules. And you're no rules. Your no it's rules. actually a very... It's, it's interesting because it's, it's one of the things that I think about a lot because, of course, when you're seeing beautiful dancers, you want to get that photo. Now, everyone has a camera. and Everyone has a phone. And so that's something we're very conscious of because we like to control you know, what sort of gets put up on YouTube and on all of that. But at the same time, it's not that that person... For me, I would be having less of an experience because this thing is in front of me and what I'm seeing, like being, you know, window shopping as opposed to going in the store. But for another generation, that's, they're still having this whole experience. This is just their way of doing. So how do we deal with the idea of seeing these screens and the flashing and the copyright issues, but also allow them to have this kind of new way of experiencing things. Or, you know, it's really it's a, it's a delicate sort of situation of trying to figure that out. We have another question here. Hello, my name is Griffin McMahon. I'm an organ student at Juilliard. Um, over the summer, I did an internship at Next Big Sound, which is a data analytics company here in New York. And um, as I was there, I learned a lot about how data analytics has, has, of course, transformed the music industry and how to try to make sense of all of social media to consolidate it into a centralized way so that record labels and uh, artists can see their success. A big thing I've seen is that brands, corporate bands, have been jumping on to starting record labels and signing pop artists and such. And my question is, in terms of the classical arts... Do you see this as something that could happen down the road, and would this be a good or bad thing? Do you see this as something with more brands as opposed to more public funding? Is that an avenue that might be something? So you're asking, with the demise of record labels, do you want to become the American Express organist, or is that what you're asking? Well, that's something that's been happening more in the popular music, uh-huh. but is that something that might be something, an area to travel down the classical music well, the classical CD has already become kind of a vanity press calling card. People in the field will openly call it a calling card, and lots of orchestras have started their own CD labels and doing very fine work. And the self-produced CD has become a legitimate and very strong vehicle for launching careers. So I see nothing wrong with getting sponsorship for it. I think that will all kind of shake down naturally. But, hey, if you're a musician and you can get a corporate sponsor to put out your CD, I think you'd be crazy to say no. You know, I, th- I don't want you to wear the logo on your tux, but I'm sure that's coming, too. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and, you know, ultimately, these, these are political questions, which is, you know, those of us who are committed to a life in the arts are going to attempt to redistribute the wealth any way we can. 
we will take money and try to turn it into money to pay artists and money to subsidize tickets so that people can experience it. We'll take that money from corporations. We'll take that money from anywhere. And so we, we swim in the sea that we're given. We don't invent the sea. But at the same time, as a citizen, I have to say I have a deep interest in uh, the idea of governmental support for the arts because in a democracy, the government is the right place to subsidize the arts. The serious arts have always required subsidy in every society. The question isn't are they going to be subsidized, it's who's going to do the subsidizing and for the benefit of whom. And under monarchies, it's kings, and oligarchies, it's the nobility, and in democracies, it should be the people, and the government should be the expression of the people and should help make the art available to the people. Thank you. I'm running for office. I think we have time for one last question here. Your name? Yeah. My name is Shavanna Calder. I'm the editor of a new site called Arts and Color. It's about people of color in the arts, specifically theater. And one of my questions back to audience etiquette is I notice for myself as a theater goer and also as a performer that when I go to see something like Ghetto Clown or Classic Theater of Harlem's production of Midsummer Night's Dream that they did this summer, the interaction and the back and forth between what's going on on stage and what's happening in the audience is very different from when I go see something like Nice Work If You Can Get It or Anything Goes. And you know, for some people, that's really great. And as you mentioned before, for other people, having that sort of interaction is disturbing. So I guess, how do you see this changing? And how do you see melding those audiences together? Because I think that also lends to inclusiveness as well. Yeah, it's, a, it's a great question. If I could just jump on this. We did a co-production with Classical Theater of Harlem this year of Detroit 67. And it was a play that we performed at the public downtown in our theater. And then we took up to the National Black Theater in Harlem and performed it there. And literally at our theater, we had, I was there one night, an argument broke out among the audience because there were people who were talking back to the stage, African-Americans who were talking back to the stage, and some of my beloved patrons turned to them and said, shh. And they said, no, we're not going to be quiet. This is how we watch theater. And it turned into an actual discussion between them, <laughs> which was fantastic. And then, when, of course, when the entire show went up to National Black Theater, there were no more arguments. It was established <laughs> the way that there was going to be a dialogue back and forth. And it was actually exciting to watch that clash. And I think, I, I pray, that my mature audience members who had said shh to begin with ended up feeling like they'd had a real and fruitful interaction, that it wasn't just somebody had broken the rules, but somebody actually explained to them, I want a different set of rules in here. For, for the Ailey Company, I mean, the audiences have always been diverse um, in terms of exactly what you're talking about. And so this idea of call and response, which really is a cultural thing, you know, I mean, I grew up in the church. You know, you didn't just sit back and go like, oh, that's lovely. No, you said, <laughs> no, no, no. You said, come on with it. You know, come on, here we go. You know, so there was that banter back, which, which we experienced a lot, and certainly maybe more so in different cities than in other cities, and you watch people kind of look over and say, is this okay? And everybody's sort of joining into that. So it, it is something that, that, that we see, but we also see how it, it's, it's sort of, contagious that way, but we've always had that kind of mixture of people coming coming to the theater. So it, it's interesting, though, to see how that all sort of collides, but we see it as, as a plus. Uh, so it's an, an interesting topic. Go ahead. Now. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been a great discussion. We need to sort of start to wrap it up now and have sort of a last question for everybody, whether we should be concerned about this report 
or is there a silver lining in the numbers that you see? Graham? I mean, yes, we should be concerned. Of course, we'd all like to see participation going up. The, to me, the silver linings were... I, I, they're, they're, I don't know, numerous, but they, they were there. I was really excited to see the participation in non-white audiences going up. To me, that reflects, I think, the way the country is going. So it means that folks who are either immigrating to this country or moving demographically from a, a economic position to another economic position, maybe slightly you know, with greater income or whatever, are considering the arts as a place they need to, to go along their journey of kind of broadening and, and educating themselves and experiencing everything America has to offer. So I was really excited by that. I'm also excited by the electronic change. It's happening. We're living in it every single day. Five, Facebook didn't exist five years ago, and now look at it. So I think electronics is very exciting. I think the demographic changes are very exciting. Um, and finally, I think we also need to question the venues at which we choose to place art, whether it be in prisons, whether it be in community. I think these are the right questions to have because to me, venue is like platform. It's like you can do it on an electronic platform or do it in a really creative venue that no one had thought to do it in. Uh, the, to me, this, the, the, the study spoke of that a little bit. So those are my three silver linings. Well, the thing that jumped out at me about this study, um, you expressed your scorn for the word consume, and I would add my scorn for the term the arts, and the study opened up. I mean, it's a very moving target sort of a term, a very mercurial term, and the study increased the definition of the arts to include all kinds of things that seem to be increasingly nebulous, and um, in its effort to sort of pin down the things we do that are creative and give us creative satisfaction... I firmly believe, and I think all of us here know, the arts are going to survive. The art that we love, whatever we call the arts, there is still going to be Mozart, and there's still going to be Leonardo, and there's still going to be contemporary art. And what we're all dealing with now are the growing pains of a tremendously exciting and turbulent time. I'm not so worried about a decline in participation because participation itself is being redefined right now. And I think the survey, above all, shows how hard it is to pin down exactly what is going on in any of these fields. You know, I, I guess I think that the uh, the good news in this is the robustness of, of Americans' involvement with all of the arts. I mean, it's demonstrated through the data. And I think in the case of orchestras, the opportunities are symphony orchestras are highly institutionalized and they're a canon-based uh, kind of arts delivery system. And so I think the challenges there are for the art itself to continue to evolve and stay fresh in a world that is just constantly changing. So the canon has to, I don't think, can hold the primary place for much longer. It's got to keep, keep evolving. It doesn't have to go away, but it's got to be, be replenished and refreshed. Robert? I think that, that, that we have to really work harder in terms of understanding these changes, but also understanding as artists, that's where we, we're the most creative. Necessity is the mother of invention. So it's really an opportunity to try to take an, another look at, at, at what we do and why it's important and what are people saying by needing this thing to feel connected. What are they actually saying? And so perhaps we need to do more listening. It would be great on these panels sometimes to talk to the people who we're trying to reach as opposed to the people talking. Um, the arts have a huge challenge before them. Uh, we have a huge challenge, just as America has a huge challenge. This is, this is a country that is um, uh, stratified in a way that it should not be. The promise of a democracy is the promise of a culture that everybody can participate in. We're supposed to have a government of, for, and by the people, and we need to have a culture of, for, and by the people. And it's, the reason I talk 
ideologically as I think it is ideological. That affects everything. That affects the prices we charge. That affects the way we want our audiences to behave. That's the way we think about delivery systems. That It affects who gets to make the art and who, whose voices we want to listen to. But it, if we don't reaffirm that commitment that we're making this art because we're trying to make a better world, a better culture for people to live in, uh, it's going to be very hard to keep our compass pointed in the right direction. Thank you all for joining us today. This has been State of the Arts, part of WQXR's podcast series, Conducting Business. Our guests were Oscar Eustace from the Public Theater, Robert Battle of the Alvin Ailey Dance Theater, Jesse Rosen of the League of American Orchestras, Anne Majette of the Washington Post, and Graham Parker of WQXR. Brian Wise produces Conducting Business, which you can subscribe to on iTunes. A special thank you to Sally Gifford, the Public Information Officer at the NEA, who provided us with background for today's event. The Green Space staff includes Jennifer Sandow, Sendrow, Ricardo Fernandez, Gaines Laguerre, David McLean, and Chase Coolpon. Today's production team includes Martha Bonta and Aaron Dalton. I'm Naomi Lewin. This is a production of WQXR in New York.